What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Boeing speaks out. No one was hiding anything. It was a set of uh, engineering decisions that ended up being wrong. Boeing Chairman David Calhoun in an exclusive interview amid mounting pressure the aftermath of two 737 MAX crashes has put on the company. This airplane will, will fly and it will be safe. As well as the CEO. He is going to experience in his first uh, uh, period one of the most difficult situations any CEO that I've ever known has lived through. And exclusive to this podcast, CNBC's auto and aviation reporter Phil LeBeau. The narrative completely got away from them. Anchors on today's Squawk Box are Joe Kernan and Becky Quick, and CNBC contributor Surat Sethi joins as guest host. Your host on this podcast, that's me, CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. So what's your process to hold... Um, people accountable to make sure you know this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Senator, uh, first of all, uh, my company and I are, are accountable. I believe that accountability starts with me. Uh, my board took some uh, recent actions regarding my position, which uh, I fully support and uh, will allow me to focus even more on safety. So every action we take is tried to uh, focus on safety. That was Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg and Florida Senator Rick Scott during last week's blistering questioning of the airplane manufacturer's leader on Capitol Hill. One month ago, Boeing's board stripped Mullenberg of his chairman title in the wake of months of criticism. Boeing grounded the entire fleet of jets called the 737 MAX following two deadly crashes, one late last year and one in March of 2019. Today, for the first time, we hear from the new chairman of Boeing, Blackstone executive Dave Calhoun. I caught up with my colleague, Phil LeBeau. Hello. Thank you. Um, why don't you in- introduce yourself? I am Phil LeBeau. I cover aviation and the airlines for CNBC, and I've been doing it for 20 years. How long have you been covering the Boeing company? 20 years. 20, 20 years of watching this company grow, uh, go through some challenging times, and this is clearly the most challenging time they've gone through. So tell me about that. The last eight months, the headlines for Boeing have been really grim. Well, anytime you have a plane crash... It's bad news. And I know that's maybe we'll be listening to the saying, well, uh, duh, of course it's bad news. Um, But it's not just that there was a plane crash. Uh, It was two of them, very short period of time between them that led to the grounding of the 737 MAX. And to put this into some perspective for people, the 737 is the bread and butter for this company. Uh, It is the cash flow generator. And so when you are effectively saying, we're not delivering any of these, you're cutting off the cash pipeline for Boeing commercial airplanes. Um, It is a massively important story, Um, one that everybody has a feeling about um, emotionally 
um, whether they're in the industry or if it's somebody who who flies only occasionally. People have um, a real concern about whether or not these planes, which are so popular, um, are they safe? Will they be safe in the future? So today on the show, we had uh, David Calhoun, who is the new non-executive chairman of the Correct. Boeing Board of Directors. But I, but very active. It's pretty clear from his interview he's active. Tell me about the scope of Calhoun's job now and what makes him qualified to lead Boeing during this chapter. He's been on the board since 2009, and he also has a history uh, going back to his time with GE when he was CEO of GE Infrastructure, working with GE uh, jet engines. Um, he's familiar with the aviation and the airline business, and he's also familiar with the challenges that go along with running a a large industrial company like Boeing. And essentially, now that he is not executive chairman, that title used to belong to Dennis Mullenberg. And, and the board has said, we're going to split your title. Dennis is going to be CEO, run day-to-day -day activities. The broader questions for the company, vision, where they're going and so forth, that will go to Dave Calhoun. And when we talked to Dave Calhoun, he made it very clear. Uh, we want Dennis Mullenberg to focus on getting the Max back in service. That is that is the main job, mm -hmm. really the only job that matters right now for him. I'm sure he's doing some other things as well. I mean, it's not like he's in a vacuum, um, but the, the Max is all-encompassing right now. Why is he speaking out now, a month after kind of taking the reins of Boeing? Well, I think the narrative got away from them last week. When Dennis Mullenberg was on Capitol Hill, uh, it was a brutal okay. couple of days. I mean, you had senators and representatives outright saying, you have no business being CEO. You have no business getting the compensation that you get. If you had any decency, you would step down. You would do more than simply say, we're working on this. Is anybody at Boeing taking a cut or working for free to try to rectify this problem like the Japanese would do? Congressman. My uh, board will conduct a comprehensive review. That's so you're saying you're not giving up any compensation at all. You're continuing to work and make $30 million a year after this horrific two accidents that caused all these people's relatives to go, to disappear, to die. You're not taking a cut and pay at all? Again, our board will make those determinations. You're not accountable then. You're saying the board's accountable. I want to go back and kind of underline uh, Steve Cohen of Tennessee in the second day of Mullenberg's yeah. um, oh, hearings yeah. in front of the House. So and then we talked with him afterwards in the hallway. I mean, he right. was disgusted. Right. He said, I'm disgusted at, at, at this entire situation here and that he is getting paid what he's getting paid, which is roughly $23 million last year. So it was wild because... Representative Cohen was asking his question, are you taking a pay cut? Is somebody going to take some kind of financial responsibility for this? And Mullenberg was sort of deer in the headlights. Absolutely. And you could fault Boeing for not being better prepared for that question. Look, I've covered enough of these over the years on Capitol Hill. When a CEO goes in front of a committee, especially on a safety-related matter, I mean, that is almost a guaranteed question. Look, if you would fault Boeing for anything mm -hmm. last week, it's the fact that they didn't anticipate that this question was coming. Because they could have nipped this in the bud much quicker by having Dennis Mullenberg, even in his opening remarks, say, I understand what's going on. I understand that I shouldn't be getting the compensation or at least all of the compensation uh, that I received last year. Uh, that would have short-circuited a lot of this discussion. Instead, he said, uh, that's not for me. That's for the board to decide really came off looking very poor for the company and for him. Stand by Joe in three, two, one, his mic cue. It's time for our newsmaker of the morning, Boeing Chairman Dave Calhoun, 
Uh, the Dow component, as you know, separated its CEO and chairman roles amid the 737 MAX crisis, naming Calhoun as chairman on October 11th. It's been relatively quiet since then in terms of on-camera uh, interviews. This morning, he's speaking out in a Squawk Box exclusive. Uh, Dave joins us now with our own Phil LeBeau at CNBC Global Headquarters. Uh, Phil, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Calhoun. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Joe. And I know you guys have a number of questions for Dave. And Dave, let's, let's begin first off. You and I were talking before you came out here. Yeah. Um, Big question right off the bat is about the compensation for Dennis Mullenberg. This came up on Capitol Hill. You have some news regarding how that's going to be changing, correct? Yeah, I do. Um, Of course, it was sort of obvious to everyone that was an uncomfortable question for Dennis. Uh, Dennis doesn't like to speak in behalf of board activities. Um, uh, Anyway, Dennis called me uh, Saturday morning, um, 10 o'clock, with the purpose of suggesting that he uh, not take any compensation for 2019 as in, in the form of bonuses, which is, of course, most of your compensation. Um, it came in two fronts. One, no short, no long-term bonus. And three, no consideration for equity grants until the max in its entirety is back in the air and flying safely. Um, as you know, uh, max in its entirety uh, takes us through all of the next calendar year um, and probably into the beginning of 2021. So it was a significant move on his part. Um, nothing surprising about that for me. Nothing. Uh, Dennis's character always does the right thing. Um, Dennis was very uncomfortable in that situation. Um, and Dennis, more than anything, walked out of the evening in between the two hearings where he listened for several hours to every story, every story that uh, the uh, victim's families presented to him. Um, Changed him for life. Um, He was doing all the right things, but now he's gotten his core, he's gotten his bones, and uh, it had an enormous impact. Enormous impact, but you know that people are watching you right now saying, why is Dennis Mullenberg still CEO of Boeing? Yeah, because in the, from the vantage point of our board, Dennis has done everything right um, from the beginning, from the beginning. Remember, Dennis didn't, didn't create this problem. But from the beginning, um, he knew that MCAS should and could be done better. And he has led a program to rewrite MCAS to alleviate all of those conditions that uh, ultimately uh, beset two unfortunate crews and the families and victims. Um, And he's done that incredibly well. He manages it every single day. He keeps the board uh, abreast of everything that happens every day. Um, And he's done that well. And he has set us up for a return to service. Because I I will remind everybody, return to service starts the day it's certified. It's not over when it's certified. There's no victory in that, right? We have to get the airplanes that our customers have put on the ground We have to get them back in the air. We have to assist them every step of the way. And we have to get the airplanes that we've built and are ready for delivery to customers back in the air as well. That's a long program. It's at least a year. And it's a tough, uh, important task. And we believe he's up to it. Joe, I know you have a question for Dave. Uh, Yeah, going back to the the compensation issue, Dave. So that that takes care of this last incident. But is there anything uh, being changed by by the board about clawback provisions for something other than fraud or or whatever you normally put in that uh, in the bylaws there, which which would cover reputational damage or which would, would then cover safety issues? Because safety issues are notoriously hard 
uh, to have a, a clawback provision for because it's unintentional and, and we know things happen. This is a, a high-risk business and everything else. But if it was reputational, I, I think that would be a way of, of making that permanent for, for the next situation. And if, God forbid if there is one at Boeing. So, Joe, the provisions around clawback, first of all, let me just say we're not looking for a clawback on Dennis. And there is nothing at any stage anywhere that suggests there's culpability involved in any of that. Um, with respect to those provisions, uh, there's no doubt we'll take a look at that. There's no question. Everything related to safety and its impact on compensation and many other facets of the operations of our company will be turned over, looked at hard, and many revisions will be made. So I don't want to predict the outcome, but you, you can be sure we'll look at it. It's been reported that uh, I don't know how many engineers are on the board of, of Airbus, but I, I know that there's fewer uh, at Boeing right now. Your, your career, you're all over the place at GE. I, I, feel, I don't know whether you need an engineering degree, but, but you've got a lot of manufacturing expertise, obviously. Um, Mullenberg is an aerospace engineer, so that's one, which makes me think maybe this is a guy that you want here right now in spite of everything that happened last week, in spite of what happened in the last, uh, in the last eight, ten months, whatever it is. This is a guy you want, but do you need more engineers on the board at a company like Boeing? Um, uh, I, don't, I don't believe we do. I think we are, <clears throat> we have an incredibly diverse board. It's, it's very strong. Everybody has a view and an opinion. Uh, we tap into it. I personally tap into it on a very, very frequent basis, not just in board meetings, but individually. Um, the safety committee chair, uh, Admiral Giambastiani, who I believe is just one of the, really one of the terrific leaders, um, he has led an effort to study, look at, bring outside experts in uh, to look at all of our safety practices across the Boeing commercial and broadly across the whole company. Um, and we have embarked on a program that will make significant changes to all of that. And I think he's doing it the right way. And, and just one last comment, Joe. You may recall, you may recall in my life at leadership in the aviation business at GE in the, where we built the engines on the airplane. Um, I joined that business 10 years after a horrific accident in Sioux City uh, in 1989. That accident, all of the major changes that occurred inside of GE and the way we stood up safety practices, ultimately created independence with our engineering organization and visibility right down to the nooks and crannies of the company. All of that was present when I joined 10 years later and everybody referred to it. That's what's going to happen in this company. That's exactly the path we're going to have to take. But, but Mullenberg, that is a, an asset. He's a, he is an asset. So he, you think he'll be here in a year, Dave? Or I've seen people say once it's back in the air, six months later, maybe there's a change. Yeah, and why speculate on that? You know how difficult and how big the program is and remains through the course of the next year, right? If we successfully get from where he started to where we need to end up, I would view that as a very significant milestone uh, and something that uh, speaks to his leadership and his courage and his ability to execute and get us through this. And yes, the board deliberates every single meeting on the subject of our leaders and how well they're doing and do they have our confidence. And to date, and, uh, and as recently as, uh, as uh, Sunday or Monday evening, Sunday evening, um, he has our confidence. Dave, there, there had been a lot of news reports in the last month that said that you were brought in to kind of manage strained relationships between uh, Dennis Mullenberg and the board. How, how would you react to that characterization? Yeah, I don't. Uh, that's, a, that's a false characterization. Um, Dennis has a relationship with all of our board members. He, uh, 
He talks to them. They each bring a sort of a special skill to him. Um, my appointment of chairman was very much about division of duty. And the, uh, that experience I brought from my aviation days and what I think is the significant overhauls that have to go on inside our, inside our company to increase visibility on the subject of safety straight up to the board and right down to the bottom of the organization and create more independence in the functions that represent safety. Do you and Dennis see eye to eye on what has to happen to get the MAX program back in the air and approved by regulators around the globe? Yes, we do. And I think, honestly, I think Dennis appreciates this help. Dave, I'm curious. A lot of people will hear this, and they'll hear that the board is deliberating or meeting on a regular basis, discussing this. But there are a lot of people who look at the board over the last year and say, what have you guys been doing? Why haven't you done more sooner? Were you too slow to act as a board? Well, no one's ever going to claim that they were fast enough. Uh, so, and I'm going to be the last person to say that. Uh, but I will say this has been one very active board. Um, so, uh, between Indonesia and Ethiopia, um, roughly uh, four months, mm-hmm. um, very tough time. Just trying to get everything we can out of the NTSB investigation or the Indonesian equivalent of that, learn the facts, understand what has to get done. Um, fairly early on, um, that assumption, that deadly assumption around what a pilot would do in that circumstance when that boundary condition was tested, um, uh, that began, uh, uh, started to come to light. There's no question about that. Um, Ethiopia happens, everything changes, and our board is in full, full gear, and me, me included. Um, we went down to the engineering organizations uh, with a new uh, safety committee that at that time was, we didn't know if it was permanent or temporary, but we were, we were on with it. Um, what we learned in that committee um, is, is the, the process they undertook to make the decisions and ultimately surfacing that flawed assumption. Um, and anyway, it was sort of clear to us, no one was hiding anything. It was a set of uh, engineering decisions that ended up being wrong. Um, And our job now is to make sure that whatever processes we have, whatever process our regulator has, that those processes never allow for this to happen again. That that assumption, just because history suggested it was a great assumption, just because history and the record suggested that, Turned out it wasn't right, and we have to test that every day. But you know, Representative DeFazio last week, you were watching the hearings. Uh, He said, look, there was an email that was sent from a Boeing chief technical pilot that Dennis Mullenberg and some of the executives were aware of. Uh, That essentially brought to to light this question of whether or not executives were aware of concerns with MCAS. I've talked to a lot of pissed off pilots. They said we were the backup system. How can we be backup? If we don't know something's going to take over our plane, they are, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of discontent out in the aviation community about that. Was the board aware of that before so, the Ethiopia crash? Uh, uh, let me separate the IM. First of all, the IM was discovered and turned over to the authorities that uh, we were meant to turn it over to. Um, the question you're asking is when it was written, was it surfaced then? Um, as a concern, was it fleshed out? Is there a broad culture uh, 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 question? The answer is it wasn't. Do we wish it had? Yes. Would it have resulted in something different around that assumption that went wrong? I'm not so sure of that. Um, I would hope that it would, 
but none of that happened. So our job is to make sure that it will happen. I do not believe that instance, that isolated instance, is indicative of a culture problem. I have not seen that in the many touches that I, that I have had. And because you know that yesterday, Representative DeFazio and Representative Larson, they sent a letter to the rest of the committee and they essentially said there's a culture of concealment, of not being 100% upfront when it comes to safety. Yeah, and I just don't, I just don't see that. I don't believe it. Um, I have many touch points inside Boeing. I always have. Um, that question of culture and anybody's willingness to trade safety against anything else, uh, never seen it, never touched it, uh, don't believe it. Now, don't confuse that. Our culture on this subject can get better. We can do more with visibility. Everybody knows that. We can strengthen all the independent arms that are meant to put judgment against every decision in favor of safety. We can strengthen those. We can increase uh, sort of the authority across the company. And those are the steps that we are going to take. Joe? Dave, in your view, what's the right balance between uh, a company and its employees and the cooperation with regulators in the the FAA? Obviously, I can't imagine the FAA trying to certify something without a close working relationship with the company, and yet if it's too close, then, you know, you, you figure that maybe the FAA is doing uh, Boeing's bidding for it. So how do you get that balance right from here on out? Because that's going to be something that, that, that people look at closely. I, yeah, that's a great question. That definitely came up in the hearings. Uh, I just don't want anybody to be confused. Um, reform will happen. Reform has to happen. Um, the system let everybody down. I totally understand that. Um, delegation of authority over a fairly lengthy period of time um, has delivered incredibly strong results. The safety record demonstrates that. And the involvement of the uh, most technical of the team at Boeing, their involvement in that process is a good one. If a rebalancing has to happen uh, by way of reform, so be it. So be it. I get that. Um, I think both the FAA and ourselves will look hard at these, look hard at all of these uh, 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 practices. We will attempt to improve them on our own, and we will encourage reform at every at, at every turn, uh, all in the name of safety. Squawk Pod will be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod with more from our exclusive interview with David Calhoun, Boeing's chairman of the board. Here's Becky Quick. Hey, Dave, um, we, we have had people, analysts and others who have come on the show and, and defended Boeing, saying that, look, they think a big part of the problem with this was a lack of pilot training in some of these incidents. Do you think that this was a situation where pilot training wasn't up to snuff or was this an actual problem with the MCAS system and, and the design? Becky, there were a lot of contributing causes. My, our job is to fix, fix MCAS and make sure whatever inputs uh, uh, ultimately come about in that cockpit at that moment um, uh, do not create uh, pandemonium. Um, there is no question the fundamental assumption we designed around uh, was flawed with respect to how a pilot would react. 
Um, and that's our job is to uh, fix that assumption and work with that man-machine interface with all of our customers and all of the regulatory authorities around the world. Uh, if you ask me, that is, the, that is the center of the issue that has to be addressed as we go forward and develop every next new airplane. Dave, the, the, I know the sensors were, you know, you had to put trust in that, that the, the MCAS was reading. There have been people that said that pilots aren't even flying planes anymore. Is, is there too much automation at this point? Is, if, if a pilot was actually more involved with the takeoff than just relying on software and, and automated systems, would the same thing have happened? Do these guys fly planes anymore? Well, I can't answer the second part uh, because it's uh, speculative in nature. Uh, pilots do fly airplanes less and less in terms of controlling them uh, uh, in flight. Um, but I do think we're past a, sort of that, that moment. Um, we are going to have to deploy automation. We are going to have to uh, ultimately uh, almost, almost uh, make these airplanes fly on their own. Make no mistake, um, I wouldn't want to get on an airplane without that pilot. Um, their judgment, uh, their behavior at moments of critical importance is, that's why I get on an airplane. So forget my uh, life at Boeing. Uh, and so uh, we're going to do everything in our power to make their job easier. And it will likely uh, uh, increase the level of automation uh, in, in the cockpit. What's Boeing's relationship with the new head of the FAA? Uh, he, he seemed like he was irritated with, with, with the company, at least in recent weeks, uh, based on some of the release of some of the information that had gone to the criminal investigation, but not necessarily to the FAA. Can you tell us what the latest development is in that and, and your latest conversations? Well, I, I Dennis, uh, appropriately uh, apologized for that situation. Um, uh, none of us are, nobody's happy about that. Um, He's exercising his independence as a regulator, uh, so I don't even want to uh, suggest there is a relationship. Um, our respect for the role he is in and our respect for the judgments he has to make uh, over the next, uh, next month or two, um, uh, I don't, again, I don't want to suggest we have one. He's doing his work. He's doing it the right way, and he's going to listen to everybody inside his regula re regulatory authority. Um, and make sure that everyone is comfortable that this airplane is, in fact, as safe as we believe it is. Dave, let me ask you about the airlines, your customers. Uh, Gary Kelly, CEO of Southwest, was on our air not long ago, and he's very upset. I mean, he came out and said, I'm not happy with Boeing at all, and they are going to consider looking at Airbus as a possibility to fly in the future. I've been very clear. We're not happy. Where we go from here is a question I've also made clear that we'll address next year as to whether or not the strategy that we've deployed for 48 years is the one that we want for the next 48 years. But you guys have been two peas in a pod since they started in 1967. Yep. When he said that, what did you think? I said sort of good for G Gary. Gary I've known for a very long time. He is, uh, he's a fantastic CEO. He, uh, he's objective about everything. Uh, we have let him down. There's no question we have let him down. Um, he was entirely dependent on the Boeing company and the 737 fleet. Um, he has confidence in that fleet. He does. Um, he knows it has served him well, and he knows it has served him safely. Um, but this gap where he needs capacity and it's not there is a real problem for him. Um, anybody at that moment in time 
has to make the decision that we're going to consider other alternatives. I get that. So we're going to have to step up to the plate if and when that day happens and put our best foot forward. And we're going to have to have a max back in the air that's flying safely, maybe safer than any airplane that's ever flown. Does that mean even greater compensation? In other words, cutting the price on the plane? Compensation is a that's that's a decision way long out from now. Right now, we are we are focused on getting this airplane back in the air. Uh, we price airplanes uh, against our competition. Uh, we always intend to win, uh, and we always sell value in the process. Um, uh, I don't think anything will change about that. Becky, Dave, do you still anticipate that? Uh the 737 MAX program will be approved, the, the, the new program approved by at least one regulator, and it will be uh, back in the air by the end of the year, at least somewhere in the world? So uh, uh, I'll reiterate a very important point and a ground rule that everyone set early on inside Boeing. The regulator will make that decision. So I, I want to state that right up front. And we are going to support everything they do and cross every T and dot every I in the process. Um, Right now, that schedule suggests that it will that what you just said will happen, that, in fact, our airplane will get certified. And as we turn the year, we can begin to move move forward on uh, uh, getting these back in the air. Um, But again, subject always to uh, the FAA's uh, schedule. Did you want to cut production any further? There's been reports that you have been an advocate for saying either shut down production altogether on the max or bring it down even lower than 42 per month. Have you been an advocate for that? I've been an advocate for stability. And so uh, the planned increases. Now, if you'll recall back when these accidents happened um, and uh, immediately following Ethiopia, I had an objective to uh, take the pressure off the company in every way I could think of. And one of them was to... uh, uh, create some stability on the 737 MAX line. At that time, we were running at a fairly low rate, 42, relative to the, what we were predicting. But my advice, and by the way, uh, this wasn't a debate, uh, accepted readily by the team, was yes, we're going to stay at 42. And why stay at 42? Why not drop to 30? Well, because there's stability uh, involved in our workforce and skills and knowledge that we want to stay, stay the course. Um, we won't, we don't want to hurt those folks. We don't want to bump through the union lines. Uh, none of that works for us or works for the airplane or works for the name of safety. So we have worked very hard to keep that stable and steady for as long as we can. And we have looked at our balance sheet and all the credit issues that you face in doing so uh, every step of the way. Every month there's a rigor around evaluating that. Um, and uh, our, our hope, our desire is that we get the certification, we get return to service, and we never have to move off that number. Joe? Hey, Dave, I, the 737 MAX is so important uh, to Boeing. I can't imagine that there'd be a, a successor airline in the works anytime really, really soon. This needs to be salvaged and saved, obviously. Can, will people a year or two from now say, yeah, I'm flying on a 737 MAX, and it will be called a 737 MAX? There's no uh, plans to change the name of it. And it will be a proud brand for, for Boeing eventually, reputationally. Is that possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, the entire company is dedicated to that. Um, your question started with a phrase I would never use, which is salvage. Um, that's, not what this is. that's not what this is. Uh, this airplane has been updated several times over the course of its, uh, its tenure out there. Um, always with the latest technology and safety uh, uh, requirements in mind. 
So it is a modern airplane, um, and this control system will be fixed, and it will be safe, and it will have been tested like no other control system, in, at least in my history in the aviation industry. Um, and this airplane will, will fly, and it will be safe. And I'll fly it, and my family will fly it. And uh, there's, the only way to win a brand back is not to advertise it or to talk about it, but to win it with every next flight and every touch. It will be called the MAX. It will be called the MAX. No, no plans to change the name. Okay. No. Uh, Jim Cramer is tweeting, Dave, and he points out something that Doug Parker from American Airlines has told him recently, that Boeing, he thinks, owes his company hundreds of millions of dollars. Also says that those costs should be borne by Boeing shareholders, not by Americans. What's your response to that? Well, there's no question there will be settlements. Uh, and Doug is, uh, Doug's right, and Doug's been uh, very clear with me on that front as well uh, as every other uh, CEO that's been affected. So there's no question there will be a fair number of settlements. And, and yes, our company and our balance sheet has provided for what we think that uh, resolution will be. Um, so there's a lot of work between here and there to, uh, to resolve that. But yeah, we, we understand that. And Doug's right. And we, we, we intend to satisfy him. Do you think your company is getting drawn into the trade talks and now potentially used as a pawn in what's happening between China and the United States right now? Well, I certainly hope not, and I'm going to operate under the premise that, that it will not. Um, uh, trade is a completely separate discussion. It's big and it's important to the Boeing company long term, but in no way, shape, or form should anything uh, get in the way of uh, the subject of safety and the recertification effort. Dave, we don't, we don't have much time left, but one last question we have for you is, I think there is a perception that the board... You talk every once in a while, not, not, you know, every month, but, you know, every couple of days. How often does the board talk? Uh, How often are you guys saying, here's where we stand on the max, here's what needs to be done? Um, oh, I, you know, I don't think a week goes by where I haven't talked to at least uh, two or three board members, at least. Um, to gain perspectives, to inform them, to make sure that we're, we are up to date on everything, reminder, Every day we get an update, a complete update on the status of the MAX and what's happening with the uh, software development, release, approval, certification, etc. Um, so this is a very involved board. Uh, Admiral Giambastiani, who has led our safety efforts and, and, and drive deep into the company, he's done an amazing job. You'd think he was working full-time on this. I think most of our, our team believe he is, and we thank him for that service. Uh, this is a very involved board. Um, it's doing its very best to cope with a very difficult situation. Uh, we are not trying to rewrite history. We are simply trying to take every next half step forward the right way. Joe? Yeah, Dave, Boeing, for years, one of the most respected names in the world, respected companies. And you worked with Jim McNerney for a long time. And those, I don't know whether I'd call them the glory years at, at Boeing, but obviously he had a very successful tenure. Is, it, is Mullenberg capable of, of, do you think, Returning Boeing to, to, to those days, is, did, it, did Boeing lose a step when it lost McNerney? Or, or I know that's a, a, a tough thing to ask, but um, okay. it, it, go ahead. Yeah, uh, let's just talk. There were two very different eras. And you may remember that when Jim came in as CEO, he came in under dire circumstance based on a, a serious compliance issue in the, in the defense side of our business. So, and he brought our company back from that, um, and he did it really, really well. This situation's uh, very different. Dennis came to us highly qualified. He is an engineer. That is helpful. Um, but he also ran big businesses inside uh, Boeing. He knows how to design airplanes. 
He uh, delivers airplanes and he has provided them safely to his customers and he responds to them when, when he's asked questions. So he came in qualified and now he is going to experience in his first uh, uh, period one of the most difficult situations any CEO that I've ever known has lived through. Um, so if he can get us from here to the endpoint, and the endpoint being a, a, a MAX that's flying in service and accepted by the flying public and, and begins to restore our brand, I might argue he's just about the most qualified executive in the world to be running a company like Boeing. So um, uh, all of us in the, have been through that CEO chair know how tough and gritty these experiences are. Um, we're going to support Dennis through this process, and I hope when we get to the end of this, uh, and we're not going to project when we get or how we get, but if we get there the way I think we will, Dennis is going to be one highly qualified CEO. All right, we're going to leave it, uh, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Dave Calhoun, chairman uh, of Boeing, thank you very much uh, for the, the extended interview. Phil LeBeau, thank you uh, very much for bringing it uh, to us uh, from uh, CNBC headquarters. Appreciate that very thank, much. Thank you. Still more Squawk Pod to come. The other stories that had us talking today and private equity pioneer David Rubenstein. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Stand back, goodbye, in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is out today. Our guest host this morning is Surat Sethi. He is managing partner at Douglas C. Lane. He's also a CNBC contributor, and it's good to see you today. Good morning. So yesterday on one of the websites, I think it was Zero Hedge, it said, China planning to surprise uh, Trump and negotiators with a last-minute demand for phase one to remove previous tariffs the on the hundred the, the, the September, September tariffs. tariffs. This has never been talked about. Uh, delaying future tariffs was the most we were going to agree on. Uh, Trump has been getting um, traction because of the bite of those previous tariffs. Mm-hmm. And China's got, this has never been on the table. Now China's going to demand that that's done before the they do a fit. Yay, because they figured it's more but, but likely then I read than it, gets done. I, I read it today. It's that these tariffs are now part of the negotiation. But the way that it was cast yesterday was that it was almost like a, 
uh, an appeasement or, or, or almost like throwing in the hand, okay, where, where now it's just, it's, two ways. It, it's is it negotiations or is it, a, are we backing down? I think it's negotiations, but I think it also means that a deal is, is more likely to get done in the near right. future. Right, well, so much of this is saving face, right? Okay. Each side wants to say, we got what we wanted out of it right now. If that happens, the market's going to like that, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's been so much of this negativity, well, we're not going to give you anything. Or you're but, you know, that's a good question. Does the market care if this is a deal that comes without a lot of teeth, if it doesn't have yeah. intellectual property and some of the others, or do they just want a truce and no more ramped up sort of... For a phase one, do we want to give up what was working to, I think for to phase, force them to the table? I, I think there will be part of that if we give up a little bit of that, but I think that the, what the market's really looking for is going forward, are you going to continue conversations? And I think that's what companies are looking for because right now so many companies are frozen in CapEx. And See, I think I wouldn't want the companies negotiating right now with China. No, right, I, I because don't. I think they'd say just... They'd it, fold. Well, yeah. depend, depending on which companies. I think the market in general thinks that... They've got to make their, thir their three-month quarterly number. And, and, and we're doing things long. So I think they'd want to... These are the tariffs that we're working. These are the tariffs that have China wondering... Companies that aren't impacted by it would probably say, go hard. You know, we would that aren't impacted. Yeah, you've got the retailers that are complaining about it because they're being affected by it. But then Coming you've up got, against the holiday season. Right, and some of the others that aren't. So I think it's both sides have to kind of say, how are we going to figure this out? It's funny you bring up retailers because the, the tariffs that they're talking about largely impact clothing, large screen TVs, a lot of the things that consumers go right. are going to be looking And that's the, the consumer spending part going right. into the holidays. And that's the part that's really been keeping our economy stable at this point. I, and probably the thing that you could see the White House caving on first because they don't want to impact American right. But you won't hear the word caving in. It'll be part of the negotiation because we're going to get something else. In well, we better get, you know, if we take those off. Right. We've got to get something back. Supposedly, the IP issues were getting close on things that people said would never, yeah. ever happen. I don't know. I'm going to sneeze here. I'm allergic to big. Thank you. I'm allergic to big losses. Uber's uh, third quarter loss uh, widened to $1.1 billion. Do you believe them that they get profitable? They can get by... profitable in two years. I don't think the market does based on the reaction. Yeah. Companies, uh, it outspent rivals, offering discounts, invested heavily on new ventures like self-driving cars and drones. Revenue, though, rose, did rise uh, nearly 30%, which was above forecasts. Also, gross bookings, which include rides, food delivery, and freight, increased 29%. However, costs rose even more, jumped by a third to nearly $5 billion. Nevertheless, uh, Uber CEO tells CNBC the company does see a path to profitability. It was a very significant beat on the top line in terms of revenue growth accelerating and the bottom line. Uh, we increased our 2019, the midpoint of our guidance in as far as EBITDA goes by $250 million. While we haven't finalized our planning, uh, and it's going to take a lot of hard work from, from a lot of folks, we are actually targeting 2021 for adjusted EBITDA profitability full year. Uber's down more than 5% today, about 35% since the IPO back in May. The stock uh, could be squeezed further tomorrow when the lockup period ends. You know what that means. Uh, employees can then cash in their shares. Uh, in a programming note, Uber CEO will join Andrew live tomorrow at the New York Times uh, Deal Book Conference. Mullenberg's going to be on. Uh, and then uh, perhaps even more importantly, Kim Kardashian. Um, Kim Kardashian West. And I think her mom. Yes. Uh, Chris, I'm, I like friends. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like we're friends. Um, Reed Hastings, that's going to be interesting. Bill Gates. Netflix and what goes through that. That person, oh yeah. Alex Gorski from J&J. &J. No. 
Hillary Rodham and Hillary Rodham Clinton. <laughs> uh, just back to Uber. Let, yeah. Let's go through some of this. First of all, he said profitability on an adjusted EBITDA okay. basis, so, which is earnings before interest, taxes, basically earnings before everything. And adjusted. And so adjusted. we don't know what that right. is, so right? And Lyft said the same thing. And right. I think if you're looking at the equity markets today, Companies that are increasing price to sales but not price to earnings are getting killed by the market. Right, and, and this is like this is one of Massasan's big investments. And yes. after the getting burned on WeWork, you're now talking about people saying, you got to show us a path to profit. you got to show us a path to profit. And then this happened to Grubhub. This is happening to companies that when they came out, the unicorns did very well. But the street is now looking for real earnings, real growth. So you're getting positive earnings reactions from companies like Facebook and, and Google, but when you look at some of these companies, even though they're big size, they're not getting positive I don't issues. think we should even use the headlines that we've been using since last night, which is expect to be profitable by the end of 2020. Just telling you're full Adjusted of, you're EBITDA full of crap. is not profitability. It's, it, it's not. I mean, it's adjusted before we take anything out of the, the costs that actually have to be paid. Uh, not, I mean, certain costs are included. They're just talking about Taxes. Well, things that you can get away with. You get least, yeah. So, so it's also two years out, and I think. Well, that's the thing. I, I think that's the thing. But if this was six months no ago, idea. they would have yeah. been received in a very different way. So but I think adjusted EBITDA, you can basically make that anything. Yes, I mean it's it's just like adjusted, adjusted earnings what? in terms. Right. What are you writing off in there? And I think that when the clarity comes to that, then I think the street will actually give them some confidence in that. The next and final guest on today's podcast: private equity legend David Rubenstein. Rubenstein founded the Carlyle Group in 1987. Today, the firm manages more than $200 billion around the globe. But Rubenstein's enthusiasm for U.S. history is almost as impressive as his investing. He owns an original copy of the Declaration of Independence and his philanthropy-transformed restoration projects of the Washington Monument and the Dome of the U.S. Capitol. He joined Squawk Box today with CNBC's Leslie Picker at the Greenwich Economic Forum. David Rubenstein last joined the show in August when he said that the economy was due for a recession. But it's too hard to say whether it's going to happen before November or after November. But at some point in our lifetime, there will be another recession. In today's interview, he admits it might not be as imminent as he thought. That's where we'll pick up his conversation with Leslie. Do you still think that uh, we're due for a recession? Uh, There will be a recession at some point, but I don't know when. We always have them. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't think today there looks like there's going to be a recession in 2020. I think there's enough strength in the economy to go past 2020. I can't predict further than that. But right now, I don't think there's a recession likely in 2020 unless some exogenous event we can't predict all of a sudden happens in a geopolitical world. Uh, One of the big topics on the campaign trail has been this idea of wealth redistribution. And yesterday on CNBC, Leon Cooperman told Scott Wapner, he he called you a philanthropist with a capital P as an example of a a wealthy individual um, who should not have to pay more taxes because of all the money that you give back to society. I'm a philanthropist with a small P. You know, Bernie, uh, 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 Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, David Rubenstein, they're philanthropists with capital P's. Do you agree with his dog in the fight? Well, he's a very smart man, but I would say generally, uh, I am giving away all of my money. I signed the giving pledge. I was one of the first 40 to do so, and I'm going to give away more than half, basically all my money. And I, I think that uh, taxes are a different issue than uh, philanthropy. I think the taxes now in the United States are not um, 
completely fair for everybody. I think there could be improvements. I'm not sure everything done in the last tax act was perfect, but no tax act is ever perfect. And I think tax inequality is a big issue, but I don't know that there's going to be one solution that's going to solve everything. I don't think all of a sudden a wealth tax, for example, would solve all our society's problems if one could ever actually be implemented. Do you think there are improvements that need to be made in terms of how the taxation of the uh, super wealthy in our our country are? You can always make improvements in taxes, but I'm not sure that there's any one thing that's going to solve our problems. If you tax the upper income people, there aren't enough of those people to really make a wealth distribution effect that's going to be significant. There just aren't enough highly wealthy people. So you have to do something at the middle class. The problem is that the middle class is roughly $65,000 per family of four, and people don't like to get taxed at that level, so there just aren't enough people at $200,000, $300,000, $400,000 and above to really make a gigantic wealth redistribution. I think taxes will be a big issue in the general election campaign, but I don't expect to see any major tax bill uh, anytime soon because we haven't had one for many years. We had one in 2017. It takes about four, five, six years before you get another tax bill because there has to be a lot of um, political support for it. There's not one right now for a major overhaul of the tax uh, code again, I think. Even if there's a change in party and... Well, you'd have to change both houses as well Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, taxes are... Presidents talk about taxes, but when they get in office, they realize that the House Ways and Means Committee really writes the tax laws, and then the Senate Finance Committee adjusts it a bit, and there's a conference committee. Presidents have some impact on taxes, but not as much as they might think when they're campaigning. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, changes under a potential new leadership, Senator Elizabeth Warren has proposed a set of sweeping changes for your industry, the private equity industry, looking at, uh, among other things, making GPs responsible for the debt and pension obligations. People I've spoken with in the industry have said this would be, uh, you know, a nail in the coffin for private equity. Is that something that you think is realistic? I don't think it won't likely happen. I don't think there's any political support for her proposal in Congress that I've seen from members on either side. I think when you run for president, you say many things you think are going to get you votes, and you realize when you become president some of those things aren't going to happen. So I think it would be a disaster for the industry, but I think it would be a disaster for the economy. Private equity creates a lot of jobs and preserves a lot of jobs and pays a lot of taxes. And we are the center of the, of the world in private equity in the United States. And if we're going to hurt this industry, I think it's going to hurt the U.S. economy. And unfortunately, I have to wrap here, but I do want to know, you had a, a new book that came out just last week. Well, thank you uh, for interviewing this. Interviewing historians. Uh, it's about uh, my effort to educate members of Congress a little bit about American history. I, I interview great historians in front of members of Congress once a month, and this is a summary of it. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it. That's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, A-Rod. Former baseball player Alex Rodriguez is CEO of the A-Rod Corp., a real estate development and investment firm. He'll pinch hit on Squawk Box tomorrow, and we'll bring it to you on the pod. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.